This is The Visionary, a Future You podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You Initiative. We are Cecilia and Ricardo, founders of Future You and today's hosts of this episode of the Future You podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Alessio Darzi, who is an economist at the Commission Director General for Economic and Financial Affairs and who is working in the policy coordination team. Previously, he was an affiliate fellow at Bruegel, one of the most, if not the most, renowned think tank in Brussels. And fun fact about Alessio is that we can call him a true Civica scholar. He pursued his academic path first at Bocconi, then at LSE, and he was finally awarded his PhD at the Hertie School. You're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> hope not. Hope not. Hope that you feel as young as our listeners. <laughs> well, let's get into this. First of all, thank you very much for joining us today. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. And before we start with everything, we really want to ask you, what is your inspiration for studying back in the day EU affairs and what motivated you to take this path? It's a funny question because I get it a lot. And you know, often in Brussels, you hear this a lot of people that just sort of end up by accident doing European affairs. They win a traineeship at the European Commission, and then they sort of fall in love and end up staying in Brussels for 40 years. And that's sort of the standard story. To me, I've had this obsession, almost, I would call it, with the EU for a very long time. In Italy, when you finish high school at the Maturita, you present a small, let's say, thesis or project of your choice. And for me, the project was the European Union that was connecting from Kant, who was talking about a possible European Union in one of his treaties, to arts, to sciences, to the European project, international relations, coal and steel communities. So I had a bit this obsession since I was in high school. I've been obsessing the world with this. And then in the end, I, I sort of felt that I had to try it out. And so I went to Brussels and did it. And then I left and then I came back and then I left. And now I'm back in Brussels. And is it up to your expectation as a child? How is it working now for the commission? What can I say? Yes, yes and no. And the no refers more, I think, to the souring of becoming an old man and realizing that life is complicated and stuff is nastier than pictured as a younger boy. But I think that is true for every place and everything. So net of this dismal remark, I would say that in general, uh, it is up to expectations. And on top of this, I have to say that I'm lucky to be around. Actually, every time that I'm around, every time that I join a European institution, something big happens. In 2012, I joined the European Central Bank and Mario Draghi announced whatever it takes in London and then the OMT. And so that was the beginning of the end of the euro crisis. And the European Central Bank had been a bit of an obscure institution for a very long time since the inception, and then it became super central. And that's when I arrived. And I left, I joined the commission, and now the recovery fund is announced to something that people had been talking about for 30 years, 40 years. Nothing was moving. I joined, and then the recovery fund is announced, and stuff is moving. So yeah, maybe I have, I've got to pick what the next institution is. <laughs> so that we get things moving, the United Nations or something. Thread carefully then. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
<laughs> okay, then. Then, because we were mentioning what you've been doing now, so what are you currently researching and why is that relevant? You have this magic power of moving things, so what are you working on? <laughs> well, my job description is to work ahead of the curve, let's say. So to work on topics that are not the hot topic of the moment yet, but hopefully that are going to be the hot topic of the future, or that's the bet. Uh, to a certain extent, I was working on the recovery fund before the recovery fund existed, so that uh, worked out well. Right now, I'm doing some work on, uh, let's say, this beyond the GDP topics. So this idea that GDP doesn't cover everything that matters and what does this mean? And again, this is a conversation that has been going on for a long time. But what, specifically because I'm in an institution and not uh, in academia, I've been pushed real hard to think of what can we do about it. We know that GDP is not perfect, but Kuznets, uh, so the inventor of GDP in the 1930s, knew that GDP was not perfect. So we've known this since the beginning, but what we struggled with, I think, is what can we do about it in practice? And that's a bit what I'm trying to think about right now. That's truly inspiring and interesting because it has a lot to do as well with the green transition and the aspect of making sure that the GDP takes into account also of the sustainability aspect. Yeah, right now, since the announcement of the European Green Deal, so in November 2019, basically everyone at the Commission, whatever you do, whether you work in uh, ECFIN, whether you work in uh, DG Competition, whether you work in uh, HR, it doesn't matter. Everything has its own green dimension and everybody's thinking about how to incorporate the green dimension. Whether you work in, uh, let's say, the logistics department, we are, we are changing buildings and all of that obviously is being pushed to incorporate the green dimension and, and uh, purchasing or renting new office buildings that have to have a very strong neutrality component. As a next question, we would like to ask you, as a researcher, what do you think is the most difficult aspect to talk about and to explain about the EU? Because as students, we know that it's sometimes difficult to understand the differences between the councils that are out there. But maybe as a researcher, maybe you have another view, another aspect that you want to mention? You're asking me as a researcher, I'll give you a very meta answer, so not the institutional answer. But my impression is... You know, I've been struggling with this a lot. Even the people that are really focused on politics and the details of policymaking get this wrong. So I've been thinking a lot about why this is the case. And my impression is that we're focusing on this too much. If you go beyond the surface, people don't know how policymaking is done in their country. Policymaking is complex. If you go beyond the surface, okay, there's a parliament, there's two chambers, the Senate, and the lower chamber in Italy, like in other places, in the US, in France. If you go beyond that, there's a structure of procedural rules and committees and presidencies and rules. It's complicated. And so I'm not entirely sure that the European Union is that more complicated than policymaking in other jurisdictions. I think we're focusing a bit too much on this aspect that people don't exactly know who the president of the PPE is and uh, how the families of parliament work. Probably people don't know how individual parties are organized in the Italian parliament either. So I don't think that's the main topic. I think that what we're lacking is a common narrative or a common understanding of what we are 
and where we're trying to go. And I was reading a lot about this and how nations came to be in the 1800s. And there's all this work on imagined communities. And they're called imagined communities because people feel that they're part of something, even though we don't really have something in common or not necessarily. And you don't know everybody. Italian population is 60 million people. You're going to know a tiny fraction of them throughout your life. And yet you feel part of something. And I think with the European Union, we have this broad problem that we don't know exactly what we are. We're not a country. We're not an international organization. We don't know how to call it. The European Commission president, when she was announcing the Green Deal, she had to say we're going to become the first net neutral continent because we don't really know what we are. We're not a country. We're not a nation. If you say we're a federation, people get all, uh, some get excited, some get uh, rough feathered. <laughs> so we don't know what we are and it's not clear wh- which direction we're going in. And so I think that actually what we're lacking is the public discussion or a founding moment, which sounds very abstract, sounds very far away. We've got a lot of problems. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're trying to create a recovery fund. There's so much going on. And so it's going to sound weird that the bureaucrat sitting in Brussels is telling you that we need something more philosophical and broad and long term. But I think that that's the starting moment. And then from there, everything follows in a way. That's actually extremely relevant. And it's a nice bridge probably to what you announced, what you anticipated to us as a possible treaty reform. I don't know whether it would touch on this topic as well. But during the competition, we asked uh, students and researchers of the Civic Alliance to imagine themselves as having complete carte blanche over U3D reform and come up with the proposals to achieve their vision of a better, outstanding future U. So if you were given this freedom, what would you do and why? Obviously, it links to all the stuff that we've been talking about in, yeah. a, way. in, in a sense. It links to what I was saying, that we need a, a fundamental moment of, of realizing what we are. But it links also to what you were saying, Ricardo, and that is the climate change dimension. I've been working a lot on climate change over the past two years, effectively. And my impression is that the way we're going to experience climate change and therefore the way that our century is going to be defined, so a long-term trend is an increase in variability. Uh, an increase in extreme events, to a certain extent, of course, extreme weather events. But extreme weather events will spill over into all sorts of things. It will spill over into politics. It will spill over into migration. It will spill over into tension between countries. So my impression is that the European Union has been founded in a period of relatively fair weather in political terms. So in the great acceleration period after the war, strong economic growth, and in a way, in a clear, let's say, axis, Soviet Union and and, uh, US, it was a world that was perhaps more clear and uh, on a more stable path. And instead, we're entering an era of high heterogeneity and high variability, and we've got to be ready for that. And so when Cecilia told me, you've got carte blanche, what I was thinking of was we need some sort of meta-reform. I mean, if I can only pick one thing, I'm going to pick one thing that sort of then starts an avalanche of potential reform. And what we were discussing yesterday was this idea of progressively moving towards a parliament that has sovereignty. And the first thing that I was thinking of that is more, let's say, closer to our day or closer to feasibility is a parliament that has the right of initiative, like in all sovereign uh, democracies, 
and so that a parliament that can start legislation and that would link together the European people, the moment of elections, and then legislation following up, and then progressively sort of laying the ground, laying the foundations for a parliament that can initiate amendments to treaties in the same way in which constitutional reform usually starts in many jurisdictions from an act of parliament. I mean, at some point later on, there could be a a referendum, as is the case in Italy, uh, in many cases, when you're trying to reform the constitution. But it is something that can start and, and that is possible. Right now, we're stuck in a situation where effectively we know that we need treaty reform for many things. But at the same time, everybody sort of rules it out because it's so complicated, it's so hard, you need 27 countries, you need referenda in so many places, you fail in one country and it's over, and that makes it sort of impossible. We need to get out of this situation, and if there is a meta-reform I can think of, it would be, it would be this. Just as a note for the listeners, we have that the Commission has the initiative, the Parliament and the Council do not. The right to initiative of the Commission is regulated, stipulated in Article 17 of the TFU. And whereas for the Council and Parliament, instead they have indirect right to initiative, so it's not that they are completely relevant. They have a lot of influence, and especially Parliament has direct right to initiative in some areas the areas that most concerned. By the way, if my bosses listen to this podcast, uh, I'm going to be in big trouble because the Commission is very jealous of its powers as an initiator of legislation. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to mention, that it's quite funny, let's say that way, that a person that is working at the commission would argue for such proposal. But it makes also the argument of how important maybe it is, as you were saying, right, to tackle the big challenges that are ahead of us for this century. So climate change, migration, but also tackling disparities in a broader sense and in the most comprehensive sense. But it's most important to note as well that, just to recap a little bit, that you're also mentioning this possibility for the European Parliament to as well have the power to amend the treaties. And I think that's also an important step there. In a way, what I'm trying to connect to is a move in in the direction of a federation. So we've created a European Union that started as an international organization. As I say right now, it's a bit of a hybrid because International organizations don't interact with citizens. They focus on the interactions between government. But in a way, for certain things, the EU pumps money directly into the economies or, or has a European Court of Justice has implications for citizens directly. There are certain dimensions in which we give citizenship. You get European citizenship as part of your Italian, French, German citizenship. So we are a bit in between things. We're not entirely an international organization. We've got a common currency. We've got a common central bank. At the same time, we're not entirely a federal structure where it is citizens that dialogue directly with the institution. And in a way, the point of contact, of course, is the European elections. That contact is there. But in a way, you have citizens feeding the machinery. But we've got to strengthen that link, I believe. And what, that is what I'm trying to argue with this carte blanche uh, policy dream. Exactly on that last point. Now we take this carte blanche away from you and we want to ask you, what is the reality check there? So what, is, what are the preconditions for this reform to happen? And what do you think really needs to be there in order for this reform to be implemented? If we focus on the smaller initial step that I was talking about, so for Parliament to have the right of initiative, of course it would require treaty change and so on. So there is the treaty change approach. I think that there is intermediate steps that 
can be looked at and the current parliament is extremely vocal in this direction so i'm not entirely dreaming out of nonsensical boy alessio dreaming of the european union and let's say even the current commission has had sort of this discussion of course it is will not be amended by having this conversation that if parliament uh, pushes for a legislation or is very keen on other legislation the commission sort of pledges to look at it try to bring it to the fore let's say we're not entirely in the realm of dreams for the rest and so for a move towards a more federal structure with a parliament that has more powers and especially the power of amending treaties here effectively we are moving towards a new entity a new monster right now we you know we don't have institutional we don't have Parliament cannot do this right now because there is no constitution for for the European Union. So there wasn't a constitutional act where we put together a document and then people across the Union voted for it. It was a treaty. So it follows treaty rules. And so every country has rules on how treaties are voted on, are ratified. And so Ireland has a compulsory referenda. In Italy, it cannot go to a referendum and you've got to go through Parliament. Every country has its own rules. And that's the way we've structured it. Effectively, we've got to move out of this and move towards recognizing that the European Union is not just an international organization. And so those are not just treaties between the countries, but there is a dimension of citizens in between. And so that citizens can amend this thing. You don't want to call it a constitution, call it a European people's treaty. I don't know, call it whatever you want. But we've got to move to a new constitutional moment. And that has to come, I, I fear, bottom up effectively from people. From people are politicians, so it cannot be started by me. It cannot be started by the, the European Commission. It's not going to happen in a in a bureaucratic or legalistic way. It has to be a people's movement, even brought forward by politics, national and European politics and politicians. To effectively have that Hamiltonian moment, right, so that we can move towards the, the Federation. For Hamiltonian moment, there was already a constitution of the United States. In a way, we were even at a step uh, before. We are at a Hamiltonian moment in the sense that our people speak about it, in the sense that we're edging towards a more fiscal uh, federation and so on, and in this sense. But then you're running always into problems. We see it with the German constitutional court, which effectively says, but you know, like in the German constitution, and in particular in the German constitution, in the part that cannot even be amended because it's like the fundamental part of the German constitution. It says sovereignty belongs to the people. People sort of delegated to the German parliament for fiscal sovereignty is delegated to the German parliament. And the German parliament can, in circumscribed ways, delegate it to something, somebody else, or somebody else. But it has to be in a circumscribed way. We're still struggling with this thing that sovereignty belongs to the people, but it is within national silos. And uh, there is no recognition that there is a European people and, and that you have a European parliament that represents the European people and, and has a sovereignty that can affect the European dimension. Well, thank you so much for the comments. And according to what you were saying before, that it's not completely indeed Alessio making up, thinking of a utopia. There was a study that was conducted by the Committee for Constitutional Affairs of the European Parliament last, that came out just last year that identify three different ways in which Parliament could have access to the right of legislative initiative. The first one was 
amending the treaties. And if I understood you correctly, you would actually go away from this logic in the first place. Then the second one would be rather than touching, leaving the treaties as they are, and instead just amending the framework, the framework agreement that is the one regulating the relationship between the parliament and the commission. But again, if I understood you correctly, you would go away from that as well, because then they will find another option. And that was instead just addressing this idea of sponsorship for for legislative action that would somehow bolster the legislative initiative of the parliament by also taking into consideration the relationship with the national parliament. How would you comment on that? You're right and wrong. As in, I agree that there are ways to do it without treaty change. I think it is important because a great case study comes from the Spitzenkandidaten process, which was a sort of protocol within the treaties. It's, it's sort of hidden there, like, yes, the council will take into account the result of the European elections while keeping the right to propose the uh, head of the commission. And then this was sort of stretched to a point where you had, for the previous commission, for the Juncker commission, a Spitzenkandidaten process that worked. And the main uh, political family, the EPP, sort of indicated the head of the commission. And that was huge. You had a treaty that said uh, it's the council that decides the head of the commission. And in the end, it's parliament and elections sort of suggested in a different way. So I think it is important and there are ways to do this. And I'm all for it. Let's get inventive with legal procedures. That being said, and I, I think that it sets a precedent. And if you set a precedent, it means that the next time around, when a treaty change becomes an option or is considered or a Hamiltonian foundational moment becomes an option, people will not look at it like this is the crazy thing, but it will be like, okay, look, this is what we've been doing. We've been doing it in a messy way. Let's clean it up and let's make it official. So I think that presidents are important, but it is important also to go for the clean option when there is a possibility, because then if not, you run into the trouble of this time around, where instead the EPP sort of won the elections, but not really, and the council took this opportunity. As long as it is not set in uh, in a constitutional document or in a treaty, you're always at risk of them losing this backsliding and losing this, this procedure. Then it's time to move back to our initiative. Thank you so much again, Alessio. And uh, as we were saying at the beginning, Future You was born out of a bit of frustration, if we want, because we were uh, in this part discussing and the fact that students and researchers, so people who are not established figures in the academia realm, so say, uh, do not have much of a voice or are not even actually much included in anything that concerns new debate, new reform debate. So I have a question for you. What do you think of student and, let's say, youth engagement in general? In light of what I've been uh, saying, I think it's the key. Yeah. It's the single most important thing that that you can do. If your frustration is that you don't get to speak about uh, regulations being uh, cooked up in Brussels, I would tell you you've got something much more powerful, which is actually being yourself and being a citizen, being young and, and mobilizing on these topics. So maybe a future EU is more important uh, as an initiative or as the seed of an initiative and a movement, an idea than many of the things you feel you're not uh, participating in. But generally speaking, it's much more powerful if people like you go back home and speak to your grandpa, your grandma, your guy at the corner, the grocery store owner, whatever it is, 
doesn't really think on a daily basis about policy and the future of the European Union in the 21st century. Uh, but just like starting that conversation and sort of firming up the topic, why do you, why you care about the European Union, the idea that you feel European and you don't want to lose some rights, something that we've seen with Brexit, that people realized when it was too late, sort of what it meant to be European, what it meant to not be European anymore, the rights you lose, the liberties you want, the freedom, the connections and whatnot. I think all of this is the super important element that we're going to need more of. If you need a European constitutional moment, you need people to feel European. And for people to feel European, it cannot be the commission in its midday briefing telling people you should feel European. It cannot be done top down. It cannot be done in a structured way. It cannot be organized, you know, the Schumann Day. Organize a Schumann Day, which is a day to celebrate the European Union every 9th of May. And we do all sorts of things, an open day. I mean, before COVID, there was an open day and people could enter the institutions and so on. I mean, it's super important. I was volunteering on it and so on. That being said, these things cannot be imposed top down. They've got to be felt. We cannot impose for countries to celebrate it. We cannot impose for countries to take a day off and organize uh, uh, events to reflect on it. Do these uh, things, it has to be bottom-up. has to be people who feel it, who uh, actually did. There, there was these, you know, after Brexit, we saw a lot of this. It was very, very beautiful. You, you saw these uh, sportsmen, or sportswomen, actually, in this case. I don't remember exactly which discipline, maybe uh, swimming, who went on the podium and, and pulled out a European flag. I mean, this is super powerful. This is, uh, like, as powerful as it gets. It gets broadcasted all over the world. It gets broadcasted in, into people's houses, even people that are interested in the sports, but not necessarily in the European dimension. And this is much more powerful than underlying going and giving a midday briefing and telling you how we're organizing the green passes for COVID. I mean, we can do that. It's important. It has to be done. But this is a truly fundamental constitutional stuff. Interesting that you mentioned Brexit. I think that for many, for me for sure, it was a big... Uh, kind of moment of awakening to what the EU actually is. And, and it's not only the past with Erasmus and, and cheap flights around there. It was really like the big awakening. And, and we see it in, in survey evidence as well. I mean, yeah. in the EU, Brexit has sort of led to an uptick of uh, feeling uh, pro-European, uh, feeling European and all these, uh, all these uh, sentiments, which wasn't granted. In the sense, there was an idea, especially in the British press, that, you know, once Britain leaves, there's going to be a domino effect. Everybody's going to push to leave. And actually, you had a compacting uh, effect with people being like, no, I, I don't want to lose this dimension, which is important, which is important to me. Well, it was a big threat huh, at the time. I remember with all the populist narrative that was kind of coming and, and dominating the domestic politics in the different states of the EU. It was a real something that a lot of us felt, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, first of all, I guess we're also kind of grateful to think of ourselves as Future EU Initiative as potentially a stepping stone for further discussions. And we are now moving towards the end of our talk. And we would like to ask you one last question. We guess that you probably didn't intend to get to the place you are right now since the beginning. So we want to ask you, what did you imagine yourself being and becoming when you were a kid? <laughs> I thought I was going to be an inventor, actually. I'm not even sure of what it means. Uh, right now, like, uh, lately, it came back to my mind because uh, you read uh, people who define themselves as inventors, uh, especially in startups. 
So there's always the, let's say, the finance guy or the money guy. And then there's going to be somebody that uh, typically has some link to university. And then there is the inventor. And that reminded me of, uh, of what I wanted to do as a young kid. Uh, and I remember cooking up all these, uh, drawing these things of uh, yeah, inventing new technologies and stuff like that. But did you had something specific in mind, inventing, I don't know, airplanes or cars or whatever? No. I was very inventive. I was in buildings and fortresses and cars and uh, yeah, all sorts of like very hands-on. I come from a scientific family, let's say. Both my parents are hard scientists. So I guess that dimension was present as a little kid, but then I abandoned it uh, full on. Yeah, my father wanted me to do nanotechnologies and I ended up doing economic policy. So I guess I didn't follow the path. That we kind of like diverged from our parents. <laughs> Seeing it, we're like, okay, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> it's a very good idea, by the way. I've seen so many people then uh, dragged into this uh, sort of competition in the back of your mind or keeping up to expectations. Plus, you know, like we always have this thing that our parents, our relatives, our grandmas don't really know what we really do. Yeah, so like, true. Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't really know and so on. For the longest of time, people had no clue. Uh, and then I appeared on TV once and they went crazy and they were like, oh my God, but then you do like important stuff. Uh, you didn't tell us that it was that important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I still don't know what you're doing, but it's important. No, they, we still don't know, but they're happy that it means that it's important. Uh, and I think that uh, in many cases, it can be a good thing that they don't know what we're doing. <laughs> our parents. No benchmarking, you know, keeping expectations uh, general, <laughs> generic. And vague as possible. <laughs> as vague as possible. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alessia. That was really such a pleasure. To I learned a lot and it was fun as well. And for our listeners, do you have any suggestion on uh, possible topics or the book that you would like to pinpoint the attention of our listeners to? I have been reading a super interesting book by a sociologist. Her name is Gabriella Elgenius. And the book is called, uh, I believe, Symbols of Nation and Nationhood. It is really interesting because in a way, it sort of links up to all the discussions we were having. And it tells you how nations came about. And actually how a lot of the things we do, and that we do sort of out of habit, actually have a very strong, powerful role in defining this sense of us, this sense of being part of a nation, of an imagined community. And you just see how much nation states do to keep this connectedness. And in stuff that you don't really see, I mean, aside from flags, which obviously have a super powerful, if you abstract and you think about it, we've created this sort of pagan emblem, pagan religion, where we venerate the flag in the US, if the flag falls on the ground, it's a, God knows what is going to happen. It's a tragedy. If you think about it, there's laws and safeguard what you can do and what you cannot do with a flag. We have all these foundational heroes, these acts of sacrifices. Every country has them. Isn't it curious that every country has a foundational myth? Every country was predestined to be, and then there was you know, a struggle, there was a fight, and then the, the light prevailed, and uh, these geniuses in the US, you have this myth of the founding fathers, which were this super illuminated, the brightest people, well, ever lived who cooked up this constitution which is perfect 
the constitution itself is revered uh, in the US for people who have been there. It's kept in a sort of basilica, feels like a temple. It's protected against nuclear blasts. All this stuff, once you look at it from a sociological angle, is all created in the direction of the stuff we were talking about, which is creating a sense of community, creating a sense of us, creating a sense of I belong to something, I'm willing to sacrifice for it if the occasion arises, I'm willing to give something in acts of solidarity. If there is a crisis, if there is an epidemic, I am sitting in Finland, but I know that people are suffering in Italy, I'm willing to send my doctors over to help them out. All of this happens because you feel part of something shared. And there is so much that nation states do. And it just illuminates all these boundaries and then gives you also a sense of where the European, there is a chapter or a section on the European Union. So it kind of tells you where we are. We sort of have an anthem, but not really. We sort of have a flag. We have a flag, which has been an inspiration for other flags. New generational flags. Bosnia-Herzegovina has a flag that has the stars signaling where the country is trying to go. Kosovo has the stars, which again, a sort of flag that has an interest towards the West, Western Europe. So it's just, I found it fascinating. It's stuff we have around us, but if you don't think about it, you don't really see it. Thank you again, Alessio. It's been truly inspiring to have you here and also a funny talk. And in the next episode of the Visionary Podcast, we're going to talk with the winner of the Future EU competition about their proposal for EU treaty reform. Stay tuned. You listen to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future EU Initiative. If you want to know more about our initiative, visit us at futureu-initiative.org.